Well, good morning. I'm wondering how many of you uh, began 2019 just with this idea or this thought that this is the year. This is the year I'm going to get my, my act together. This year I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to lose a few pounds. I'm going to jump in. I'm going to do it. You know, there's something about that, you know, the, the beginning of that new year. Some of you, maybe? Yeah? Or then I'm wondering about, you know, now that we're three weeks in, I wonder if maybe you're feeling more like this. Um, yeah, I'm into fitness. Fitness whole pizza in my mouth, you know, that's, yeah. It's interesting. I was reading an article recently and it says uh, it was talking about New Year's resolutions. And evidently, we in America are really good at that. We like to do that, more so than other parts of the world, evidently. At least this author was saying so. Because he, he, know, he was noting that in, in January, gym memberships go up dramatically. Um, weight loss programs, you know, you get blitzed on TV this time of year. People sign up for that. It's amazing. And I think some people, even uh, they kind of look at their finances you know, after Christmas and go, oh, i got to get my act together, i gotta, I got to do some things here, and maybe they want to sign up. And I know we have financial peace, which is a great opportunity, but uh, it's, it's things like that. Then I also noted in there that some people wanted to uh, do some new spiritual habits, which is fascinating. You know, some, some people say, hey, the New Year's begun, I want to go back to church and begin attending and be a part of that. Or uh, I was reading that this... Um, version Bible app, which I have on my phone. It's a free app. It's a Bible reading app. It's a, it's a great app. I would encourage you to, to get it. Well, they were reporting that on January 1, in one day, January 1, 2018, this is a year ago, they had 700,000 downloads of, of Bible reading plan, okay, plans in one day. Well, then they surpassed that. In 2019, January 1, 2019, they almost hit 1.2 million downloads. For, for a new Bible reading plan, which is amazing. So I was thinking about that for myself. What, what is it that we're drawn to in that? You know, wh- why is that? Is it this new calendar, new beginning? Maybe the opportunity for a clean slate? You know, hey, I can start over. Or maybe it's this longing for a change or for a transformation of some sort. It's interesting. I think somehow we are drawn to this this idea where we long for this better version of ourselves. Now, what if I told you that that better version of yourself is possible, that that longing is possible? I want to look at this image. The cross. For those of us who are Christians, the cross is a powerful symbol, isn't it? The cross gives us the possibility of a new beginning, a clean slate. It's an opportunity for us to find freedom, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And here's the good news. We don't have to do anything. (laughs) It's what Jesus already did. That's amazing. And the invitation is simply to receive that. To receive it. Now, Jesus also invites us into this sort of cross-centered life, if you will. To receive what he did, but to, to live the kind of life that he lived. A life that is kind, that is loving, that is joyful, purposeful, and self-sacrificing. 
a life that is beautiful. In fact, I'm convinced that the world, the world is desperate to see that kind of beauty, to see the beauty of Jesus. For us to receive that cross-centered sort of life and the beauty that Jesus gave for us, but then to reflect that, that kind of life to the world. That kind of beauty, that kind of wonder. How can we live that sort of changed, transformed life that reflects the wonder and beauty of Jesus? Well, that's what this series, I think, is about. And we're looking at what we call the Beatitudes, which are ten phrases, really, at the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a, is a longer teaching of Jesus in, found in Matthew's Gospels, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the Beatitudes begin that teaching. And, and really, the Sermon on the Mount is all about Jesus teaching about the beauty and the wonder of the kingdom of God. And this invitation, if you will, to live that kind of life. And so I want to focus on just two of those. And, uh, you know, this idea of living this life that is blessed or approved by God. What does that look like? Well, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, these are the two that I'm going to focus on this morning. He says, blessed or approved by God are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So I want to just look at that. What, what does mercy, what does it mean to live a merciful life? How can we reflect the beauty and the wonder of Jesus? Well, he says, live a life of mercy. You want to become a better version of yourself? Be merciful. Be merciful. What does that look like? Well, um, not this last summer, but the summer before, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, Giselle and I were, it was a Saturday afternoon. It was during the summer, and uh, it was beautiful. It was not hot. It was just a beautiful day. So we were like, man, we got to get out of Dodge. Let's go. So we thought, well, let's run up to Clear Lake, and we're going to throw the bikes in our van. So we did that, and we're going we're gonna to ride around the lake and uh, take a trip around the lake. So we did. We got in our van. We headed up, and then we, we were driving to Clear Lake. And I got to tell you, outside of a GPS I would have told you we're in the middle of nowhere. I had no idea where we were. It was like we were on these country roads trying to get, you know, back way up to Clear Lake. I just had no idea. We were just on an adventure. And I come to this intersection, and I pulled up, and I was about to stop, and I hit a... It was like back tire, just, I mean, just two seconds, it was flat. I mean, it was just exploded. I'm like, oh, no. Here we are stranded at this intersection of some county road and county roads, and I have no idea where we are. But I do remember that I have roadside assistance. So I get on my phone and I start calling. Well, in the meantime, there's a farmer in the ditch. He's mowing, mowing the ditches. And so he comes walking out of his tractor, come, comes up to us, and I'm on the phone. And uh, I'm trying to describe where I'm located and where I'm at and and he comes up and says, hey, can I help you? I said, well, where are we? I have no idea. He's like, well, you're about four miles north of Hampton on such and such county road. 
I'm like, hey, I'm on such and such county road right here. And, you know, it's like, and the guy on the other side of the phone, I mean, he's clueless, obviously. But, uh, you know, he's like, well, I'll call you back when we have some idea. So I hang up the phone. This farmer's like, hey, how can I help you? He said, well, I got a flat. And so he goes back and he inspects it. And he said, oh, tell you what. I live about a mile down the road. My shop is about there. And why don't I go get my, my truck and some tools and I'll help you out? I said, well, I just called. They're going to send somebody. No, no, no. You don't understand. There's nothing open. Believe me. <laughs> Let me just go. I'll go get some tools. I'll help you out. So he goes and he brings back his truck and he brings back a real jack. You know, they never give you a jack. And, you know, they give you a real jack. He got one of those slide in, did, does the whole thing. He's like, hey, let me change the tire for you. I'm like, no, I insist. I want to do it. He, he goes in and I'm like, he does it. He changes my tire. He brings the donut on. I'm like, I'm starting to question my manhood here. <laughs> he's doing the whole thing. And he's like, yeah, no, no, it's fine. I want to help you. And so he does. He helps me and... Uh, and before long, I'm, I called the, the roadside assistance back and said, hey, we're okay. Forget it, you know? Well, then he says this. He said, you know what? Why don't you follow me down to, to my shop? I want you to take your bikes out of the van, and we're going to throw it in the back of my truck, and you guys just go. Let me see. Let me get this right. I have a 2005 Honda Odyssey with about 230,000 miles on it. You have a 2015 Chevy one-ton pickup diesel, by the way. Yeah, I'll take that trade. <laughs> so we go to his shop. He literally takes out our, our, our bikes, puts it in, in the back of his truck. He takes the wheel, you know, with the tire, or the flat tire on it, throws it in the back of the truck. He says, hey, I want you guys to have a good time. You just go, go ride your bikes, and then I know you'll fix that tire, and we'll get connected again. I'm like, who are you? What are you thinking? And I had this amazing experience. I'm like, we didn't know what to do. We were like, no, 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 we shouldn't do it. No, you just do that. We're, we're fine. I'm fine. I'm like, really? You talk about Iowa nice. But it goes even further, okay? So this story gets amazing. So I come to find out, the next day I got the tire fixed we actually took his truck, we took it all the way to Clear Lake, we took it back to Grundy Center, I took it into Cedar Falls. I took the tire here to get it fixed or replaced. Then we make connection with him. And finally we started figuring something out. It gets deeper. It's like his son was a part of a college ministry in Ames when we were in Ames. He had come to worship with us in Ames before. He said, I thought I recognized you guys. His son stood up at our friend's really good, uh, a really good friend of ours, wedding. And he was at the wedding. He was like, wow. But he showed mercy. He went above and beyond. This idea of, of compassion and kindness that helps and heals, that's mercy. Jesus illustrated mercy over and over again in the New Testament. And I want to share just a couple stories. One is Matthew chapter 9. This is the calling or the first really encounter of, of Jesus with Matthew, the author of the gospel. And he begins this section. He says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. 
And he says, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him, which is amazing, okay? But then it goes on. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what does mercy look like? What is Jesus trying to illustrate in this passage? One of the things I'm convinced is this. Mercy begins to see people with the backdrop of eternity. It doesn't see them in the moment, in the worst of who they are, but in the potential of who they can become. You think about the story of Matthew. Matthew, we know, was, uh, was also known as Levi. Levi. So most scholars think that he grew up in the tribe of Levi. In other words, he was a Jew. But the tribe of Levi had a specific assignment. They weren't given land. They were given the, the task of, of being priests and providing temple worship for the Jewish people. So if Matthew grew up in that context, guess what? He was a church kid. Probably a pastor's kid, you know, priest kid. He grew up in the context of all of the religion of the Jewish people. And yet for whatever reason, he walked away. He didn't just walk away. He literally rebels. I mean, the depth of his rebellion is hard to measure. But we do know that tax collectors were not looked on with favor. I don't know what it was. I don't know if he was disillusioned. I don't know if he was disappointed. I don't know if he was just chasing the money. But he walks away from everything he knows. In fact, I was trying to think of what's an example in our day? What could be kind of the level of betrayal, the level of a rebellion that would be kind of in today's language? This is what I came up with. I don't know if it's, it's good or not, but it'd be like a pastor's kid who became a money launderer for a drug cartel. It's like breaking bad, right? Like really bad. And yet Jesus comes to him and says, you, I want you. I want you to follow me. See, he doesn't see him at his worst Because that's what we have a tendency to do, right? When people make mistakes or life choices that we disagree with, we tend to remember those things, right? We have these still photos that sort of stick in our memories. But Jesus doesn't do that. He sees people for who they are and what they can become. With the backdrop of eternity. But Jesus also believes this that he is the remedy to change their life. Jesus is the remedy to change their life. In fact, he says it. The Pharisees are asking, why in the world is Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? 
On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Want to experience life change? Jesus is that. Mercy looks like that. Mercy believes that Jesus is the remedy to change someone's life. Let me go to another story. It's found in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 10. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Let me just read it. You've probably heard it, but let me read it again. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But as... As a, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. May have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise. So what is Jesus trying to illustrate? What are these, what does mercy look like? Well, one of the things I think is this. Mercy sees the distress. The Samaritan saw him. Now, I think this is a really important thing, okay? I'll tell you a story. This is just a couple weeks ago. It was really still one of those warm winter days. And here it is. It's Giselle and I on, our, on an adventure again. We, we, we went to Eldora to walk around Pine Lake. And it was towards the end of the day. And so we walked around Pine Lake, and, and I was hungry, and I was ready to go home. And I thought, you know, let's just, let's just head home. So we did. We headed home, back to Grundy Center, I'm driving probably four or five miles outside of Eldora, and there is a man on the side of the road. True story. And he is literally laying down, you know, on one of these drives into the field. And I'm like, is that really a man laying on the side of the road? You know, uh, surely he's okay. I'm hungry, right? And I'm driving and I'm going, I'm, I'm hungry, I just want to get home. And then there's this little voice that goes, are you going to stop? It was Giselle. <laughs> I'm like, 
Yes, dear. I had no intention to stop. I was just ready to get home. And so, but yes. Okay, so we turn around and we go back. And I'm like, the guy gets up real fast, so he's alive, praise the Lord, you know. But we have a conversation. It's like, are you okay? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm fine. You guys go on. I'm, I'm really okay. I said, do you want us to call someone? Do you need a ride? No, I'm okay. Just, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm just, just here. I'm like, you sure? Yep. So we went on our way. <laughs> but I got to tell you, it's just a reminder. It's like my natural tendency is not to see. I want to ignore. I want to just move on. Mercy sees the distress. The Samaritan saw him. But then there was something else. There was something internally that responded. There was a heart of compassion that flipped in that moment. In fact, Luke writes this. He said, he saw him, he took pity on him. To have mercy is to... Something needs to happen inside of us, this heart of compassion. And then we can respond externally with a practical effort to, to relieve the pain. And he does. He does amazing things. He goes to him. He bandages him. He puts him on his donkey. He brings him to the inn. He pays for it all. That's mercy. Mercy responds to relieve the pain. But here's the big Bigger deal. Mercy responds even when the person in distress is an enemy. It's a Samaritan with a Jew. And we know that they don't like each other, right? They're not supposed to like each other. So what would that be like in our world today? With that neighbor or coworker who gets under your skin. Or that person who disagrees with you in conversation. What would that be like to show mercy? Mercy is not afraid of even our enemies. What would that be like? Let me just tell you another quick story about mercy. I have a friend, his name is Peter. He's the head of Youth for Christ in Bangladesh. He's not always the head of Youth for Christ in Bangladesh. He actually came from Bangladesh. He grew up there. He came to the United States to be trained. And he had a vision to go back and serve his people. And God gave him this desire to start this ministry. And it's an amazing ministry today. But 25 years ago, he says, I was sitting in my apartment... With my wife, we had nothing. We had, all we had was a dream and a hope and, uh, you know, willingness to do something on God's behalf. And they began praying and wondering. One of the things they started noticing was that in their culture that there was a real problem of drug addiction. And Peter, the way Peter described it, he said, you know, in, in Bangladesh, a lot of good Bangladesh people will say, you know, that... Good Bangladesh people shouldn't have those kinds of problems. And so their tendency is just to ignore it rather than face it. 
I said, wow, that sounds an awful lot like my, my upbringing. You know, good Christian folk, we don't have those kinds of problems. And so you know what his first ministry was to the people of Bangladesh? was a recovery ministry. Why? And he, he believed the best in them. He believed that Jesus was the, was the answer for them. And it opened up amazing doors. These people from, from high government officials who had family issues, they were sending their family members to this recovery ministry because it was really the only option that they had in the whole country to get help. And Peter believed that Jesus could bring about change if they showed kindness and love and believed the best in them. And it opened up doors. It's like the second half of that verse. Those who are merciful will be shown mercy. And they were shown mercy in the midst of a Muslim country. A Christian ministry was given unbelievable access. And doors opened wide for them. Why? Because they, they led with mercy. That's mercy. Well, let me move on. I want to address uh, the second one. Blessed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What does purity of heart look like? What is that? I want to read just a couple of verses out of the Psalms. Psalm 51, verse 10 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Well, let me tell you what purity of heart is not. Purity of heart is not a sort of conformity to, to a moral code or an outward expression of morality when inwardly there's, there's a mess. In fact, Jesus got on the Pharisees for this very thing. He said... You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. In other words, you look good on the outside. You got it all together. You got this image management going on on the outside. But you are a mess. In fact, you're death on the inside. And that's not purity of heart. You see, if we're going to be the best version of ourselves, if we are to live this kingdom life, if we are to reflect the beauty of Jesus, something has to happen here. And so David of all people, says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Think about this. He wrote this psalm and his exterior life was a, was a mess. In fact, it had little to do with his circumstances on the outside. He'd committed conspiracy for murder and he'd committed adultery, all of these things. His life was a mess. And yet he wanted God to do something here. In fact, if we are going to experience change and the kind of life that God wants us to lead, it has to start here. Create in me a pure heart, God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Blessed are those who have a pure heart, for they will see God. They will see God moving. They will see God changing. They will see God. There's another verse in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. And he goes on, they will receive blessing from the Lord 
and vindication from God their Savior. In other words, what is purity of heart? A pure heart has a single-minded devotion. They're not distracted by idols and false gods. They're pursuing God with all of their heart, their mind, their strength. There's a single-mindedness. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, I am one of those people who does New Year's resolutions. In fact, I wrote a couple things down this year. I don't often do that, but I, I kind of think, yeah, new year, new beginning, new start. And I was writing down some things. I, you know, I wanted to exercise more regularly. I, I got, my, got me a fitness watch for Christmas, you know, so I got to use it. Maybe lose a few pounds. Maybe, maybe read the, through the Bible. I hadn't done that for a couple years, so I wanted to do that. And as I was thinking about it, I thought, yeah, some of these things are, are surface things, aren't they? In some ways. And I was thinking about what Jesus is wanting for us and for me. There's something deeper there. There's something life-transforming that he's longing for us to have. And I thought to myself, I can't do this. I may want to do this, but I derail it. I, I don't persevere. I, I fail all the time. It's like, you know, this conviction upon me. I thought, yeah, I want, I want to receive what you give to me on the cross, Jesus, but to this cross-centered life, I, I'm not sure I can do it. And then I had to say, you know what? I can't. Apart from the power of Christ. And you know what came to mind? It was Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And then I was reminded that when we say yes to Jesus and what he did on the cross, he comes to be with me, in me. And he joins with us. And it's the power that rose him from the grave. That same power is in us to help change us, to help us be the best version of us. That is amazing. That is grace and mercy rolled into one. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes it this way. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glory inheritance, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That power is available to me, to you. I'd like to end by praying a prayer that Paul prays for his friends in Ephesus. Let me pray. Let's pray together. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of 
Your, God, your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that, that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. God, that we may be filled to the full measure, to all the fullness of God. God, we long to be a better version of ourselves. But we need help. I need help. God, I pray that the reality of your strength, your power, would come alive in us, that we would know the fullness of him who called us by name. God, I pray that you would help us to reflect your beauty simply by trusting in your work in us, that we would be more merciful, that we would seek to be people who are of pure heart. God, we would know your grace and your love for us in a deep and powerful way. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.